You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. We wish it ended there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And, and then John chapter 10 says this. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Father God, we pray that you would help us to hear your word in the way that you want us to hear it today. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What I want to talk about today, in light of it being Mother's Day, is I want to talk about the space that exists between what we know to be true and what we see happen. What we know to be true and what we see every day. It's called dissonance. Dissonance is the space that is created between what is supposed to be and what appears to be so. So maybe you're here and God has given you promises early on in your life. And you know, it doesn't matter what people tell you, you know God's given you these promises. And none of them are coming to fruition. But you know he gave them to you. And every time you try to reassess it and say, maybe I misheard, you are always reassured through signs and wonders and and appointments and confirmations that God truly did give you these promises. And so you're standing on them and you know, but what you're seeing is the opposite of those promises. That space is called dissonance. And I want to talk about what we do with the space that exists between what we know to be true and what we're actually seeing. And I bring this up on Mother's Day because I feel like in a lot of ways, the love of a mother often feels like it's living in disappointment, not because it's a lesser love, but because it's such a strong, unbelievably perfect love that it hopes all things, believes all things, rejoices in all things, and even when things are good, knows better can happen. And so it's always yearning for more. Sometimes we feel disappointed because our love is right. Because we're not willing to settle for what we see. Our love leaps over the mediocre and wants better. 
And so sometimes it's not disappointment proper. Sometimes it's the melancholy, the sense of yearning that love creates, where I know this is good, but I know there can be more. And I feel like this is the world that Jesus lived in, knowing that things are getting better, but until they're exactly the way he wants them to be, there's going to be a love that weeps over Jerusalem, a love that stands at Lazarus' tomb and cries. What does this have to do with Psalm 23? For some of us, the dissonance that I'm talking about, the distance between what is true and what we see happens within ourselves. What I know to be true of me and what I see when I look at myself are two very different things. And so broken self-esteem, hating myself, being insecure with myself, feeling shame and guilt over what I may have done or what has been done to me, there's some dissonance there. Other times, the dissonance is between us and other people, relationships that we have on every level from from mother, daughter, mother, son, to all the relationships, friends, best friends, kind of good friends, like you're my best friend, but not my number one friend. Like I have all these categories for friends. Like you're my best friend, but he's my BFF. Like all these kinds of things that we say. In all of those relationships, there's expectation. There's things that we know to be true. And then there's what we see. And sometimes there's dissonance there. There's distance between what we know to be true and what is happening in, or what we, what we perceive to be happening. And because that's the case with us and ourselves, and because that's the case with us and others, that makes it between us and God. Because all things hold together in Christ, amen? Which means that anything that ever happens is happening in him. Which means that if I'm disappointed with myself, I'm disappointed with him. If I'm disappointed with my family, I'm disappointed with him. If I'm disappointed with my church, I'm disappointed with him. If I feel shame over myself, I feel shame over him because he is in all things and all things are in him. So I can't have a relationship with you and have that not relate to my relationship with Christ because Christ is all and in all. And so my issues with myself, my issues with others are and make up my view of God and how I relate to him. So Psalm 23 I want you to think about the parable that Jesus told of the one sheep that goes astray. There's a hundred sheep. They're all marching along behind the good shepherd. Every one of those sheep can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me, listen to this, in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Every one of the hundred sheep can pray that. But verse 4 changes the game. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what just happened? There's dissonance between verses 1 through 3 and verse 4. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what just happened? There is an infinite gap between verse 3 and verse 4 that we never pay attention to. He leads me in paths of righteousness, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil. What in the world just took place? Do you see that? A hundred sheep can pray the first three verses, but one of those sheep goes astray. This is what Jesus said. One of them, if one of them leaves, what will he do? He'll go find it, yes? One sheep goes astray and finds himself not by living waters anymore. Wolves and cliffs and rocks and thunderstorms and snowstorms and 
The sheep is alone. And that sheep stops praying Psalm 23. But then the shepherd finds him. And on the way back, the sheep can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because he's with me. It's only a person who has gone astray into the dissonance of life that can pray the rest of this psalm. It's only somebody who has taken a wrong turn. Now watch this. David is very clever because there's two kinds of brokenness in the psalm. The first one is, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, just after he said, you lead me in paths of righteousness. So what does this mean? This means that he went off the path he was supposed to be walking on. You lead me in paths of righteousness, but even when I go on the wrong path, I'll fear no evil because guess who's on that path with me still? Guess who's on the wrong path? Guess who's on the way that is not the right way? The good shepherd. But then he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So there's two reasons why somebody can go off the path of righteousness. Because of our mistakes and because of enemies. The broken world around us, other people. And in that case, unlike the Pharisees that we read about, I don't need to pick up stones because I can pick up a cup. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So now we know why it ends with, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Why is he saying follow me? Shouldn't he be following goodness and mercy? It's going to follow me because when I go the wrong way, the good shepherd is forever chasing me down. He's always behind me. This is the love of a mother. This is a love that leaps over rebellion. It's a love that leaps over sin. It's a love that leaps over rebellion in the face of love. It's a love that leaps over sickness. It's a love that leaps over brokenness. It's a love that leaps over bad news. The love of a mother is relentless, and that's why this person can say, even if I sleep with Bathsheba and kill Uriah and go the wrong way, and I've broken covenant with my family and everybody, goodness and mercy will Will not stop chasing me down. It won't stop chasing me down. It's relentless. That's what we know to be true. Verses one through three is always true of God. But verses four and five, shadow of death, presence of my enemies, this is what paths of righteousness look like when it's refracted into our broken world. What I mean is this. Sophia and I, my daughter, were looking out the window, and she sees a little rainbow on the living room floor, and she goes, what is that? And you quickly realize, I don't know how to explain this to a two-and-a-half-year-old. I know, it's colors. What do you, and they don't stop asking questions. Well, what is that? So I say to her, it's light. She says, no, that's light, and she points outside. Oh, God. What dawns on me in that moment is that the light that we're seeing on the floor in color is the light that's outside, but it has entered a different reality and bent. 
And so now it's showing up as color, but it's the exact same light that is showing up in its like invisible infrared status outside. When it gets bent through rain, when it gets bent through glass, the same light shows up differently. And so what we see in Psalm 23 is the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me on paths of righteousness. That's always what's true of God. But when that love bends into our broken world, it looks like he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's what his love looked like when it bends into our sin. So when David is in the valley of the shadow of death, he is having his soul restored by living waters. When he's in the presence of his enemies, he is on the paths of righteousness. It's just that that path is bending and making its way colorfully, like a rainbow, like a promise that I won't destroy you because I'm with you. The gospel according to Sophia Evangeline D'Andriana. That's the first example of what it means to fill the dissonance, fill the space of what is true and what things look like or how I feel. The Pharisees in the story, they're in that dissonance also. They're saying, if you really are the Messiah, prove it to us with a sign. And he says, I'm not going to. You're not of me. You're always looking for signs. And the proof that Jesus is right is that when they don't get the answer they want, they pick up stones to throw at him. So their next action, their response, this is good, their response to critique reveals whether or not the critiquer is right or wrong. Oh, praise the Lord. I have a pen. I'm going to write that down for myself because I need to hear that. If one gets critiqued and complains about the critique... Odds are the critique was right in the first place. <laughs> Son of a gun. Okay. Just got slapped upside my own head in front of everybody. Whoopsie daisies, as I always say in my life. You really hurt me. Whoopsie daisies. I made, I don't know. I'm sorry. So here we are. What just happened? I just got discipled in front of an entire church. Okay. There's two ways that we can fill dissonance. So what are they saying? They're saying we believe that Messiah is coming. We, we are standing on the promise that the Messiah is coming. This is true, and they're right for believing it. And Jesus is the answer to the hope. Jesus is the answer to the promise. He's the fulfillment of that promise, but he's not fulfilled in the way they thought he would be fulfilled, so they treat it like he's not the answer to the promise, which means we are always in danger of rejecting the answer to a question because it's not the answer we were expecting, and we say God didn't answer us, but he did. It just looked very different. So let's start with God loves the Pharisees because he sent Jesus to them. He is the answer to their prayers. They're saying God hasn't answered us yet, and this imposter is claiming to be. How many times has God promised us something, and we're so sure because of the nature of the promise that we know what the fulfillment would look like? The fulfillment comes, and it hurts more than we thought it would. And so we say it's not the fulfillment and we have four Gospels that tell us that God can show up in front of our face and we can kill him. And so we sit here as New Testament Christians and say, because of the story, we won't make the same mistake. But those Jews in that second temple period moment with Jesus standing in front of them, they could say, well, we have this entire book of the law that's saying that he's not who he says he is. And we have four gospels saying we would recognize him when he comes because we have a story about people who didn't. And the reality is we will still not recognize him. 
we will still not recognize him or his gifts or his promises because they don't come according to a fallen, broken paradigm that we're living in. Hmm. So what do we do? We do what they do and we pick up stones. When you're living in the dissonance between what you believe to be true and what you're seeing and the space that exists between those things, there's two options, control or humble submission. Those are the only two options. They pick up stones because it is in us as Adam creatures, creatures from Adam. It's in us to close the gap of the dissonance with force, with intimidation on four levels. The first way, the first stone of four stones that we pick up is the stone of verbal control. Whether it's with ourself, with others, or with God. We use our words as ways of closing a gap that we know we're helpless to ever be able to close. And so maybe with ourselves and with others, we use positive words of flattery and compliment and, and way over the top positivity because we're trying to close the gap with the force of perfume. We're saying the right things at the right time to try to change how they're responding to us or how we're responding to ourselves. So that's why we have, and forgive me because like Paul in Athens, this just triggers the daylights out of me and I wanted to use a different word than daylights, but I can't because it's Sunday. Tomorrow I might, but today I'm gonna say daylights. This idea that I can claim of myself what is true of me and wake up in the morning and say, I'm beautiful, I'm amazing, I'm wonderful. I'm going to win today and not lose. I'm going to be the head today and not the tail. Go tell people in Haiti to do that. Come back and tell us all how that worked for them. Why does this stuff only work in a first world country? I'm not going to get on a tangent that is so tempting to get on and just scooter on down and beat to death that that's vain repetition. When Jesus talks about not vainly repeating things. He's not talking about don't say the liturgy on Sundays. He's saying don't think that positive confession can change the fact that you're sinful. Only the blood of the lamb can. Only what I say over you can. I know I'm disappointing a lot of people on Mother's Day, but I don't care. So, but we also can use our words violently. We can use our words violently. We got a lot of people lobbying for gun control, but they're doing it in a verbally violent way. And Jesus says, your words can murder people. And so before we need any kind of legal or political control, we need moral control over our mouth. Before any laws change, if my mouth doesn't change, it doesn't matter what laws exist at all. We will mess them up if the heart that proceeds out of the mouth doesn't change. So I could say we shouldn't have guns, but if I'm calling the people who think we should fools, I'm shooting them with my mouth in a way that Jesus says is just like a gun. Just tossing it out there. Not advocating for one or the other. I'm just saying here's how we use our words wisely. You can't advocate for something as a humanitarian and do it in a violent way because you're still failing in the gospel. All right? 
We use flattery or abusive or intimidating language to close the gap of the dissonance. We use physical control. Some of you have done this or it's been done to you on the very basic level, actual physical violence to close the gap between what we want to be true and what is true. Sometimes it's a fist through a wall or a slap in the face or something much worse. Because losing our temper is the number one confession that I have lost control and I think the best way to get it back is to try to reclaim what I've already lost, which is control. Intimidation or movement. We've, we, we teased about this a few weeks ago. People who move from job to job to job to job or house to house to house or car to car to car or unfortunately family to family to family. Like these things we think if I physically move from one location to another location, I can close the gap of the dissonance. But the reality is read Genesis chapter 3. We said this a few weeks ago. It's just Adam and Eve. No children. No need to work. No job to go to. No traffic jams. Perfect, perfect creation. And everybody gets to be naked and it's okay and you still mess it up that means moving someplace isn't going to work because if that worked Eden would have worked and we never would have sinned but even Eden doesn't keep us from sinning so Florida's not going to help or another boss or a nicer car or another family it's still not going to work We don't close the gap of dissonance by moving, by physically moving people or hurting them, or by moving ourselves. Not going to work. Relational control. Giving or withholding the closeness of relationship to try to close the dissonance. Sometimes we withhold love. We withhold proximity. We withhold level of kindness that we're capable of because we're disappointed and we're trying to close the gap of the dissonance. Sometimes we bring ourselves closer. Helicopter over our children. What if I go to work and someone else is watching them and they walk for the first time and I miss it? It's okay. They're going to be walking a lot of places for the rest of your entire life and you'll have plenty of time to see it. Trust me. There's this fear out there in Millennialville that I can't miss a second with my children and they don't realize you're crippling your children because one day they're going to have to learn to live without you there. And if it's just crippling attention all of the time, you're cutting their legs off. They're going to get used to being held, not walking. So sometimes we give too much relationship. Sometimes we pull back from it. I am teasing Millennialville because it's true. That's why. Participatory control, final one. Increasing or de- I love this. I love this because it's me. It's so easy to, whenever you see me walk away from the pulpit, it's because this is my life now and I don't need notes because I know myself. Have we ever messed up and immediately developed a plan to discipline yourself not to do that anymore? Please, I'm not the only one. 
like the the easy one to make a punching bag is the gym. Like the doctor's like, hey, your blood pressure is really, really like you're the, you're you're gonna die. And so you're like, you know, what I'm gonna start doing tomorrow. I'm gonna start exercising. And like right away, the fact that you have to say that shows that there's a hole someplace in your life that is so. Why did I need to hear this to say that? And the reality is I didn't, my mind hasn't changed. I just feel scared that I might die. So I'm going to say to appease my anxiety, I'm going to be more disciplined. We spend more time debating with our anxiety than we do with the heart that caused the problem in the first place. My goodness. I do. Okay. I do. We say, you know what? I know I'm rude when I get mad. I'm going to fast. I'm going to fast for three days, and when I'm done with this fast, I'm not going to be rude or nasty anymore when I get mad, except give me no food for 10 hours, and in the middle of the fast, I'm already mad, and I'm being rude and nasty during the fast. So then once I'm rude and nasty during the fast, guess what I stop doing? So, uh, yeah, Sal's, I'd like a large pepperoni pizza, please. Send it on down with an order of barbecue wings. Yes, your pizza place. I'm sorry. By the way, this dude back there, I, you know, I'm not allowed to say that. Just kidding. You don't make good pizza. Um, we, or, or, and I think we like this one better, we totally give up disciplines when we make mistakes. Have you ever dug a little, like, two-foot hole in an argument with somebody? And once you go past that one line, you're like, well, I'm already in this hole. So let's see if we can dig to China right now. And say all the things. And you realize afterwards, if you would have just stopped at the first three comments, we would have been okay. It's the rest of them. It is never our initial arguments that break stuff. It's how we respond to the other person in the initial argument that begins to break stuff. How many of you have said, we started fighting, we don't even remember why we started. It's because the ego is relentless. Yeah, I know. I know. The pastor of this church is so aggravating in the way that he preaches. Ugh. But he's right. He's right. He is right. He's right about this stuff. You want to know how I know I'm right? Not because of, like, ego, because this is, this is a sermon about me. I'm talking about me. This is so easy. Verbal rocks we throw. Physical rocks we throw. Relational rocks we throw. We try to close the gap with these rocks. When we see the difference between Psalm 23 verses 1 through 3 and then paths of righteousness really is the valley of death, we try to close that gap with force. But now, let's look at Mary. I want to paint a picture of Mary's life quickly that is different than most of the ways it's painted because I'm going to do something that you're technically not supposed to do, but in this case it works. You're not supposed to cherry pick and pull out proof verses to make a point. If you ever want to come up with a doctrine and you need proof verses to do it, and the narrative behind those verses is absent, but the proof verses are there, it's a crap doctrine to begin with. But watch what happens when you take Mary out of a story. Watch this. Mary says yes to a miracle that she didn't ask for. Let's start there. She didn't say, I feel there's a calling on my life to have a supernatural baby. From virginity without my husband. Because Joseph would have shut that down. No, it's not from God. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. 
she's, Gabriel shows up. They go back and forth, and she says, you know what? Let it be to me according to your word. And months later, she's thrust into Egypt. She has to leave her family. She has to leave her friends. She has to go into a foreign land. Dissonance. You said, I'm going to have a savior, and now I'm not being saved. You said, I was going to give birth to a savior, and now I'm the one who needs saving. She doesn't pick up stones. She ponders in her heart. Then she gives birth, takes this baby to the temple. How many people have ever gotten like a promotion and you buy all these new clothes and you can't wait to go to church on Sunday? She brings this miracle baby to the temple. Harsh prophecy. A sword is going to pierce your soul. Imagine somebody at the door is like, Pastor, I just want you to know, I got a raise. A sword is going to pierce your soul. Dissonance. You told me I'm going to have the baby. And then you send me to Egypt. You miraculously deliver me. And I have this baby in the most miraculous way. And people show up and stars start shining brighter than other stars. And all these amazing things happen. And I bring the baby to your house. And a known prophet says, a sword is going to pierce my soul. What I'm hearing and seeing is not what I know to be true. Dissonance. But she doesn't pick up stones. She ponders in her heart. She raises her son to be 12 now. And she brings him to the temple with all the relatives. And she leaves. And three days go by. And Jesus is not there. I was pulling weeds, minus all the jokes from Mother's Day, if you were here. I was pulling weeds while Jacqueline was here with Sophia. And we, for a minute, I look up and Sophia was gone. I cannot tell you the moment of panic that you have for thousands of, your brain is capable of imagining so much in a split second. She was standing behind me, whatever. <laughs> Sophia, Sophia, what? it's somehow Jacqueline's fault. She's not even here. What happened? <laughs> Sophia, what? If I wasn't out here pulling weeds, I wouldn't have lost the baby. Like I'm sending all these things. And then, oh, she's like, hi, dad. And I'm like, ah. Okay. Imagine three days. Lose the baby in Manhattan, and you find out three days later and got to go back and hope that they're still around. She finds him and says, why have you done this to us? This is a mother mom's. Just put yourself there. Imagine it. You finally find the baby. You see Jesus. This is amazing. It's a miracle. You shouldn't have found him. And he says, why were you looking for me? Bend over. What? <laughs> Why was I looking for you? Because people are around, you know, like when you lost your temper and people are like, right now, right now, right, 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 right. 
Definitely Mary and Joseph were doing that. Joseph is checked out. He's like, listen, I had nothing to do with this baby. Now, all these things drag me into something. I don't know what's happening in my life. And now the joker says he's supposed to be about his father's business. Cool, Jesus. I'm a carpenter. Apparently, you're about somebody else's business. I'm out. Perfect. Mary, let's go. She doesn't pick up stones. Why is this child saying to me, he's supposed to be about his father's business? When he, and then she has this thought, when she knows his father's a carpenter, wait. And she pauses. Oh, yeah. His father's not the carpenter. She ponders it in her heart. When Jesus is 30, she knows. Look, my mom knew I was supposed to pastor, and I did not behave like Jesus probably did. If I got lost in the church, my mom would be so happy that that's where I got lost. She wouldn't have had a problem with it. Oh, wait, he's, okay, cool, no, it's fine. We, Frank, we can go home. It doesn't matter. Like, you know you're an overachiever when you get lost in the church. Jesus, like, I'm sorry, but like, okay. I would have gotten lost. I, I did get lost other places. We'll just leave it there, not the church. She knows her son's goodness. And they're at a wedding. And there's no wine. And this is a paradigm moment for Mary. She says, let's not embarrass these people. I know someone who's got the heart to fix this. Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Jesus says, the worst verse to quote on Mother's Day, woman, what has this got to do with me? Now, I say that sometimes, but it's usually because of the garbage needing to be taken out or something like that. I'm not the only one who put garbage in there. We should all take it out. If it was only my garbage in there, then I would take it out, right? That doesn't ever work. Remember the thing I said about the sun coming up? Just remember that part. You're beautiful. But then Jesus goes and does it. Woman, this has nothing to do with me. And then he goes and does it. Now, look at this. Every time something happens with Jesus and Mary, Mary gets close to it, and it seems like Jesus pulls away from her. Jesus, in her womb, pulled her away from her family. She had to go to Egypt. Jesus, as a 12-year-old, pulled away from her and said, why are you even looking? You're not supposed to be looking for me. How does that feel to a mom? I am supposed to be looking for you. Every instinct in my body knows I'm supposed to be looking for you. Why are you telling me not to? If it could feel like rejection, there's dissonance there. She keeps pressing. And then finally he says, this has nothing to do with me. And then he goes and does it. Now, again, for Mary, that could seem like rejection. Why did you do it, but you didn't do it because I asked you to? You wanted me to know that you were going to do it, but not because I asked you to. Here's what's happening. Jesus is preparing his mother for Good Friday. Because Jesus just said to Mary, I need you to know something. Your love is so ferocious that you need to know, Mom, that the events of my life aren't because of you. Now, I would say to my mom, the events of my life are because of you. But Jesus has to say they're not. Because if Mary thought 
that the events of Jesus' life are because of her, she would have grown mentally ill on Good Friday. It's my fault. But Jesus, every time Mary gets close to him in the gospel, Jesus pushes her back. She gets close again. He pushes her back. Jesus, Jesus, your mom is looking for you. You're all my mother, is what he says. Can you imagine how that would feel if you're a mom? My son won't stop ministering. He's not sleeping. He's not eating. Somebody go tell him. I, I want him to come home. I call my mom from here, and I'm like, Mom, you want to make grilled cheese? I'm going to come over. You want to make grilled cheese? She makes the best grilled cheese sandwich of all time. But imagine, every time my mom tries to get close to me, I push away. She leaves that moment like, what is going on? And then on Good Friday, in spite of being pushed away by Jesus all this time, on Good Friday, she fights to get to the place of her son's execution. We have now lost how this might feel. She fights to get to the, her nightmare. She couldn't dream of a nightmare this bad. And she gets there just to let him know, I'm here for you. And he says, John, behold your mother, take her home. An overseer, a past overseer of this church said, Dr. Mark Hamby said, the only thing that could have kept Jesus from dying wasn't the devil. It was the ferocious love of his mother and he needed to get her out of there so he could actually go through with it. Mom, I can't do this in front of you. You keep chasing me down. I'm trying to protect you. But look at this. There's dissonance between what the Pharisees think the Messiah is supposed to be and what Jesus is. And the way they close the gap is by picking up stones. And here's the thing. Even more dramatic. There's dissonance between who Mary knows her son is and what she's seeing. And every time Jesus pushes her back to create that dissonance, Mary charges back at him again. And Jesus pushes her back again, and she charges back at him again. She won't go away. What is allowing Mary to close the gap of that dissonance that is not picking up stones? It's not verbal force. It's not physical force. It's not anger. It's not abuse. It's not manipulation. It's not little slights and sarcastic comments. What is she doing? Luke wants us to know. Look at this. The first time you hear about Mary, and remember, the gospel of Luke is Luke and Acts. Luke and Acts are the gospel of Luke. Okay, in the beginning of his gospel, Luke 1.35, where am I? Here we are. Come on, turn the page. Dramatic moment. I just lost it. Okay, here we go. This is when we first hear about Mary. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the first thing Luke wants us to know about Mary is that she is instantly charged with the Holy Spirit. And then look at the last thing Luke says about her in Acts chapter 1. And when they had entered the upper room where the Holy Spirit is about to fall on the church, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Listen to this. All with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with, listen to this, the women and Mary. Notice Luke says the women and Mary. He didn't have to say Mary, because he just said the women. 
But he wants you to know all these people are there, but there's a most important person there. See, when we first find her, the Holy Spirit is overshadowing her. When we see her again, the Holy Spirit is coming upon her in Acts chapter 2. The bookends of Mary's life dictate and reveal what everything in between was and always was. And it is the power of the Holy Spirit is what helps Mary close the infinite gap of dissonance. How do I wake up in a world where I know something is true of me, I know something is true of my family, I know something is true of my church, I know something is true of my life, I know something is true of the world, but what I see is complete opposite of that. I sit there and I call upon the power of the Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary in Luke 1, that overshadowed Mary in Acts 2. Here's what we learn. When Jesus said... John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. We have preached, and I have said from this pulpit, Jesus was preparing his mother for his death, but he wasn't. Because did Jesus stay dead? He wasn't preparing Mary for his death. He was preparing Mary for his ascension. She wasn't going to lose him because he died. She was going to lose him because he was going to ascend. Jesus was preparing Mary for life. And saying, the way that you'll receive me and have me the most is when you receive me as my spirit. Mary had Jesus. Lost him in the temple. Got him back as a 12-year-old. Lost him on the cross. Got him back as a resurrected man. Lost him in the ascension. And got him back as the spirit. That's how we close the gap. Watch this. If you're sitting here saying, Pastor, all makes sense but where do I get the energy to to believe the Holy Spirit? Here's what we know. Psalm 23 is given to us every Easter because Psalm 22 is given to us every Good Friday. Watch this. Psalm 22, every Good Friday, you are demanded to read Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 23 in Eastertide, we're called to read, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because there's been a resurrection. Death is only a shadow now. But what does Psalm 22 teach us? What does the Revelation text that Courtney read this morning teach us? That Jesus is the good shepherd, but he's also the lamb that went astray. And he's also the space in between the two. He's the shepherd that finds the sheep. He's the lamb that had to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the one that closes the gap of the dissonance, and he's the one who experiences the very dissonance that we experience, which means if he is the bookends of our dissonance, then he is also the space of dissonance. And how can, Pastor, how can you say that Jesus is dissonance from the Father? Here's how. When you see him, you immediately don't think he's God. There's something about him that doesn't compute with what you believe about God, and then you see Jesus. But he is the space of dissonance. He lives in that space. He is that space. And so right now, if you're here, and what you know to be true about your life, your kids, your friends, your family, your own self-esteem, is not what you're experiencing. The space that exists is Jesus. He is the space, because the Spirit overshadows everything pulls everything up into itself. Put 
the stones down and pick up bread in a cup. He prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. All the dissonance is closed. Let me say it differently. The dissonance will never be closed. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. I have said a few times now, and this is going to seem like a leap, but I assure you it's not. I've said a few times now that the reason why I love having a dance ministry in this house is because everything in our life is so functional that we forget that the Trinity, marked by the Holy Spirit, fills things with something that is not function. The Holy Spirit doesn't give you a rule and rubric to get out of your valley of shadow of death. The Holy Spirit does things lyrically. The Holy Spirit does things artistically. And so sometimes watching people dance reminds us of how God wants to fill the space in our life. The dissonance that we feel, the pain that we feel, every time we get closer to God, it feels like he pushes us away. That space that exists there is filled with a dance. It's filled with the Father being free to love the Son and the Son being free to love the Father in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I was wrestling with, I want Stephanie to sing right now because I knew that this message would feel like it feels right now. I knew it would. And instead I decided, you know what, I want, I want dance to happen because I will tell you till I'm blue in the face, dance marks how a Christian walks through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't lumber through it. We dance through it. The dance of pain, the dance of tears, the dance of sorrow, the dance of joy. I don't care what it is, but it's a dance nonetheless. Jesus is on the cross. Jesus is being arrested. And every time the whip strikes his back, he says, I remember that you've always been faithful to me. Every time the crown of thorns was pressed deeper into his head, he says, I remember you've always been faithful to me. Every breath he took that seemed like he was moving farther and farther away from the breath of life itself, he's saying, I remember you were always faithful to me, which is why after crying out, you've forsaken me. He says, Father, into your hands I commit the spirit. I know you're here. And it's why the book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before me endured the cross. Because somewhere Jesus was able to remember. It feels like there's dissonance right now, God. It feels like there's separation right now, God. Maybe you feel it with a child. Maybe you feel it with a spouse. Maybe you feel it within your own self. Maybe you feel it with God. Maybe the romance and the perfume and the oil of your relationship that was once so amazing and so profound is now nothing but function, nothing but blind submission, nothing but obligatory obedience at best. And what does he do? He calls us to come to a table and says, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering Mary pondered all these things in her heart and at the point of attack on Good Friday she remembered a sword is going to pierce my soul. This is supposed to be happening. She remembered I'm supposed to be about my father's business. She knew this was supposed to be happening. She remembered 
Woman, making wine is not why I came here. I came for something far greater. And she remembered those times that she thought Jesus was rejecting her, but he was preparing her for this moment. Somebody in this room has to remember and not forget that in the Spirit we were all there on Good Friday. And the Holy Spirit can help you remember something you weren't even present for. That's not spooky and that's not superstition. That's the gospel. Holy Spirit, right now, we, we, we normally pray certain things, but right now I'm asking you that when we come to your table, I pray that we would remember the moment of your greatest act of faithfulness. When you hung on the cross between two thieves, two ways of living, dissonance between the one rejecting you and the one repenting, you pulled them together. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, in this moment that when your church comes to your table, that you would pull some things together, that you would fill the space of the dissonance. We're going to go home, and there's still going to be dissonance, Father God. We're going to go, we're going to wake up tomorrow, and there will still be unresolved promises. I'm asking you that you would fill the space with the Holy Spirit. So much so that we would leave this church And in the church, we would be like Mary. And no matter how hard the world pushes us away, that we would relentlessly pursue it. Even if we think people have gone astray, we would follow them into the valley of the shadow of death, on the road to Emmaus, on the right road, the wrong road, that we, like a mother, would stop at nothing to chase our children down. God, I pray that we wouldn't pass judgment on people who are on the wrong road because you're on the wrong road. I pray that we would chase them down. And if they push us, I pray that we would still chase them down. And if they push us, I pray that we would still chase them down. And if they push us, I pray that we would still chase them down. And if they push us, I pray that we will keep chasing them down until you come back and chase the entire world down. Until the day when goodness and mercy stops following us but completely overtakes us and gets out in front of us, I pray that your church would be the goodness and mercy chasing the world down. I pray that the world would say, your goodness and mercy are chasing me because every time I turn around, I see the church. It's relentless. It doesn't stop. I pray that we would love that way. And I pray that it would start here at your table. Fall on these gifts and make them for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And fall on all of these broken bodies and make us for the world, the body and blood of Jesus. I pray that we would become bread for the world, Father God. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to the table this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.